It's three minutes past 10. Joining us now, our good friend, Mr. Al Bat. Hey, Al, how are you? I am great. That was good to hear that. Uh, Carol Henderson, uh, I'm proud to call him a friend. He's uh, just a wonderful guy and has done so much for um, non-game wildlife. Uh, in other words, the things that we do not hunt or fish. And He's just uh, been a wonderful, wonderful inspiration to, to many of us. So appreciate him. Now, in that and story, he, he they talked about the scarlet tanager being the one that was selected. Now, while it's very cute, I have actually never, ever seen a scarlet tanager in Minnesota, which makes me think, I think the loon probably makes more sense because you see them. <laughs> Yeah, and the scarlet tanager certainly is a, a breathtakingly beautiful bird. It's a black-winged red bird, and uh, they do nest here and there around us, but they're up in the tops of trees, and it, you would think still that bright red would make them very visible, but when they dance among the shadows in the treetops, they become extremely hard to see, and uh, they sing... Uh, when I was a boy growing up, uh, I was told that they sounded like a robin with a sore throat. So they have sort of that song. But they're, they're lovely birds. I get them uh, coming into my feeders every year to visit a jelly feeder in the spring. And it's uh, a lovely, and it's really cool if I have a camera somewhere within reach so I can get a picture of it. Uh, I think a, a house would have to have, oh, 127 cameras near as I can figure out in order to <laughs> to have one within reach every time you wish you had one and it's the same no matter where you go you know your bag you'd have to have like 17 in each bag and your car would have to have 24 or 5 depending on the size of the car it's just uh, so often we uh, every day I think somebody tells me oh I wish I'd had a camera, and then I could show you this. And pretty soon we'll have them put right into, uh, oh, some of our molars, I would guess. And we can look at something and just blink, and that'll trip the shutter, and we'll be able to get a picture. But once again, before I forget, because I usually forget these things, I want to thank everybody at the Freeborn County League of Cities and the Numas House, uh, the group that met in Cortland, for uh, allowing me to come there and bloviate to those fine folks. I have a few mosquitoes in my yard, uh, so if there's any hunter that's interested in bagging a trophy skeeter, you know, bring your fly swatters over here. I did hear gunfire in the distance this morning, and perhaps it was produced by a mosquito hunter shotgun. <laughs> and uh, I heard a lecturer a couple years ago, and I want to say it was in Can Oh, I, I better not say where it was at, because I don't remember for sure. But he said that when ravens hear the sound of gunfire, they will head towards it, because they recognize that sound as a possible supplier of food. Wow. So they're, uh, they're just awfully smart. Where most things go the opposite direction, ravens very often head towards it. I saw a fawn. Uh, it's put on its winter coat, so it's got rid of those, those spots. And I saw a lovely garter snake yesterday. It was, it, it was really huge. One of the bigger garter snakes is as big as they get about. And this cool fall weather brings out snakes. I'm seeing, uh, I wanted to say flecks of fall colors, but it may be on going beyond flecks right now in the trees. 
Um, of course, I'm seeing a lot of red in sumac and Virginia creeper and poison ivy and some of those things. And the the nuts are falling from the Ohio buckeye tree in my yard, so the squirrels are gathering those up. What do buckeyes and look like? Because I, there's some nuts that are falling off some tree in our by our lake house, and I really don't know for sure what kind they are. They they're sort of like an acorn, but with no cap, about that size, maybe a little bigger. Is that that might that might be hickory nuts? Oh, okay. I I I don't know for sure, but that's they're around that size, and we have bitter. Bitternut hickories, and we also have shagbark hickories, and the shagbark hickories are are quite tasty. The bitternut ones are, as you might imagine, very, very bitter, and the squirrels love those hickories. These guys, oh, how can I describe what these nuts, they're, they're bigger than, uh, than an acorn, maybe oh, a cross between an acorn and a walnut kind of size. Hmm. And uh, somebody was telling me about them, and they had these nuts in their yard the other day, and they said they were chestnut-colored. And I said, well, I bet they're, they're Ohio Buckeye. They're kind of a chestnut to mahogany-colored. So I think the trees are very, very beautiful. I just uh, love having them in here. They have showy yellow-green flowers in early spring, and the fruits will have, oh, they're, they're real rough. They're kind of a spiny, golden-brown husk, and then they'll usually have one seed or nut inside. And um, they're really neat trees, and there's quite a few of them around because they're a popular landscape tree. So... Um, and if you grab some of the seeds and remove them from the husk, you can put them in the ground, and maybe you'll have another another tree. And probably bury them three inches or so, I would guess, down in there. Uh, I walked past some box elder trees in, at the edge of my yard this morning, and sometimes they're called an ash-leafed maple, or if you go north a ways, they're called a Manitoba maple. And the trees produce these wing seeds, they're called samaras, that mature in late summer. And a box elder is a hypochondriac of trees. It appears to be always dying, but it never gets around to it. <laughs> yeah, that's I, one of the things that, but we used to have a box elder tree by our home in Wisconsin growing up on the farm. And, and I would swear every year a big, a big branch would fall off it and it just looked terrible. They're weak trees, I think. But yet they keep going and yes. going and going. <laughs> I I had uh, I mentioned this to the good listeners. I I had a never-ending supply of aunts, which I I thought I did anyway. But one of them just had something wrong with her. It seemed like all the time, and yet she lived to be a hundred and six. So you know, I guess maybe uh, maybe spending all that time in the company of. Uh, of good uh, doctors and things, maybe that, uh, uh, maybe that's why she lives so long. Going back, I carry a a buckeye in my uh, in my pocket because uh, my dad used to carry them, so I carry them in there. And uh, I'm, I'm looking at it here, and it's it's kind of white at the cap. It really doesn't have a cap, but it's white at the cap, and then it's that chestnut colored. Uh, on the rest of it, and they're really pretty, uh, really pretty in there. They're not edible unless you're a, a squirrel. Oh, 
Um, Jerusalem artichokes are still, I'm still showing a lot of yellow flowers in the yard, and that's a native perennial sunflower. And wild cucumber that everybody was talking about, it's beginning to abate. And, you know, we don't have kudzu here. And wild cucumber, wild grapes, and Virginia creeper have to take its place. And riverbank grape, which is the wild grape, is a native perennial, and their vines can get 75 feet long. Um, Virginia creeper that a lot of folks call woodbine, which is actually a related plant, is another native perennial, and it has a vine that reaches 90 feet in length. Now, we we talk uh, we hear a lot about kudzu and that's in uh, in the south primarily although it's it's creeping up here in the, in the north uh, we're seeing a lot more of it and it just gets closer all the time and it's a native to asia and it was introduced to this country to prevent soil erosion to feed cattle and to shade porches and once established it can grow 60 feet in a growing season I saw a turkey vulture soaring overhead, likely attracted to the dead skunk on the road. There's one place on our road, not far from my driveway, that is like a skunk cemetery. They seem <laughs> to get hit in that same spot. And I, and I walk down there, and I look around, and I think, why, are they, why do they get hit here? And, and not just skunks, but raccoons and possums as well. Is and there a skunk-crossing sign or, or a critter-crossing you know, sign? There should be. I looked because I thought, well, maybe it's been knocked over and it's in the ditch or something. Then there's nothing, and I can't, there's not like a wildlife, well, obviously it's a wildlife corridor, but there's nothing there that would indicate that you should cross here. This is a good place to cross. So I'm going to have to keep looking at that to see what in the world's going on. Uh, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology said this about this bird that's often correct, incorrectly called a buzzard. They are deft foragers targeting the softest bits first and are even known to leave aside the scent glands of dead skunks. So they can eat all these things they do, but some vultures apparently will leave those scent glands. Just say, you know, (laughs) I couldn't eat another bite, and I I just, I'm not going to eat that. And everybody that has an oak tree... I'll bet you're saying, you know, I walk in the yard and it's like I'm walking on bulb bearings because acorns are just so numerous this year. A healthy, mature oak tree can drop as many as 10,000 acorns in a year. And generally, a large mast, which is a, a nut crop, occurs every two to five years. Uh, Bud Prescott, who was with the uh, the newspaper, the Senior Perspective, said, "Al, if you have a chance, could you tell me if this is a Cooper's hawk or something different, like a goshawk? Apparently, it looks similar, but I bet you know." Um, boy, thanks for sending it, Bud. And his photo was an excellent photo. It's an immature raptor, and I could tell that, Bud, because of the light-colored eyes. They darken as they get older. And it appears to be a young red-tailed hawk to me. There's not enough streaking on the breast to make it a Cooper's. So this should be a pretty big bird, and it wouldn't have acquired a red tail yet. And a goshawk would be less likely, and it would have a lot more streaking as well. Uh, An Austin listener said, are the hummingbirds gone? 
Um, yes and no. Uh, in my yard, they apparently are gone now. But, uh, you know, later today, there might be some there. I typically see them the last week, for the last time, the last week of September. So that's what we're into here. And this is kind of the time of year when they are gone. And I know uh, somebody's listening that says, I got a pile of them in my yard. But uh, this is the time of year where they are, are kind of out of here. And as far as feeding them, I know a lot of good folks say, I don't want to feed them because I'm worried that I'll keep them here and they need to get on the road. And I just, I don't want to, I don't want to hold them up. I wish I could just make them a sandwich so they could go and be happy. I I try to keep my feeder up about a week after I see the last hummingbird, just in case I get somebody coming in there. Did you see my my email to you about the uh, we had a, one of our listeners from Austin call and she says is this the end of the hummingbirds? She was wondering if this is it. Yeah, I it is. Yeah, but again, there could be. There's always a straggler to. Uh, I was walking around. Uh, the bike trail in Albert Lee yesterday, and I saw a few there uh, still buzzing around. One buzzed up into my face and said, "What are you? What are you up to, buddy?" So uh, I, it is. This is the end. This is the last week, typically. And uh, I know I know somebody will be calling in uh, in October and will say I still have one here at my feeder. But for the most part, this week is when we see the last of our our buddies, the hummingbirds. Uh, Tom Jessen of uh, Medelia sent me a lovely photo of a salamander. I like salamanders a lot. Clay Culbertson of Albert Lee said there's an injured sandhill crane near Pickerel Lake. And these always feel so bad because it's, it's injured, but it's healthy enough that I don't know how you'd catch that thing. It's, they have that big bill, so they're dangerous to be around. The sad part about so many injured big birds like that is that unless you get lucky to catch them in some odd way where they're trapped in something, it's almost impossible to catch them until they are just about goners when they become so weak. And uh, the only place I know of to take them is at the uh, Wildlife Rehabilitation Center in Roseville, and I've mentioned them a lot because they are a, a wonderful, wonderful place. Anything you have as far as critters go, they will take them and uh, try to rehabilitate them and, and re-release them. Uh, Roger Davis of New Alm sent me some photos of monarch butterflies, hummingbirds, and a, a tree frog, beautiful green tree frog. Lynn Wasmone said he bought a, Lynn is from Alden, he bought a, a used bit of farm equipment. So he hauled it home, and he's looking around in there, you know, you know how men are, we buy stuff and then we drag it home and see what kind of deal we got on it, saying, oh, never noticed that i shouldn't have paid that would knock off 25 dollars right there or for them usually we like to think we got the best of it well that part there alone would be worth a hundred dollars more than i paid and he looked in a, a crevice or a hole in part of this farm equipment and something in there blinked at him which you don't expect to do that when you're greasing up farm equipment to, and it turned out he had a great horned owl that was stuck in this hole in the farm equipment. 
So he was able to extricate the owl, and uh, the owl, he said, it flew away. But because of the number of droppings in there, he could tell that it had been in there for a while, what it was doing in there in such a tight quarters, nobody knows. Uh, Oren Risen of Albert Lee was just south of Albert Lee on his motorcycle, getting in some of those last rides of the year in the beautiful weather. And he said, trumpeter swans, parrot trumpeter swans. And he was just, he said, he'd never seen any quite that close before. They were right along the road. And I was on the way to Mankato the other day on Highway 14, and there were a pair of uh, trumpeter swans there. That was that uh, beautiful night with all the storms, and I came back home, and I drove down Highway 14 to turn on to 13 to come home, and 13 was closed because of downed trees, and I don't know if some wires were down and things, too, but I had to backtrack and go the old, the old way home, as we say around here. At, at what temperatures is a killing frost? A listener, and she says, no, I am not from frost. I'm from <laughs> Bracelet. So I, I think that's good. Uh, frost is the coating of ice crystals that form on plants when a freeze occurs. And if the air is loaded with water vapor, then we get a lot of frost. In a killing frost or hard frost, I was always told that's when the temperature drops below 28 degrees. So you will hear, hear farmers and gardeners talk about a hard frost or a killing frost, and that typically means it gets uh, 28 or colder. So we're going to be down to, I think, 34, 35 this week, but I, I still recommend if you've got some sensitive plants like your coleus or things like that, you should cover them because... It's, it can damage them, especially in low-lying areas. So even though it's, it's not a killing frost, it can still have an adverse effect on some sensitive plants, begonias, things like that. It sure will. And um, where I live, part of our, our farm is a peat ground. So it's an old mule lake bottom. And if I walk down there when it's 35 up here, mm-hmm. it'll be below freezing down oh. there. It's just... Uh, it, it's always always a couple degrees cooler down there, and you can feel it as you walk. You just say, boy, it's getting colder down here. Uh, a nice listener, oh, there's no name on this email, said, but what makes a plant a flower instead of a weed? And we have all the things. If it's hard to pull, of course, it's a weed. If it's growing where it shouldn't <laughs> grow, it's a weed. And But I think the one thing is the mind of the person seeing it. Exactly, because yeah. everything can be a flower, but everything can be a weed, too. That's exactly right. You know, uh, if you're th- three, four years old, a dandelion is the most beautiful flower on earth. If you're somebody that loves an immaculate lawn, it might be the most insidious weed that's ever been been come to this world. So, uh, how fast do monarch butterflies fly on their way to Mexico? Well, monarchs can fly at speeds uh, nearly 20 miles an hour. That's moving right along. They'll travel 40 to 100 miles per day when migrating. Uh, one exceptional butterfly that they tagged traveled 265 miles in a single day, so he was really booking it. Uh, they will glide on favorable winds to gain speed. Their trip to uh, Mexico can take two to three months in some cases. Uh, monarchs 
don't fly when weather conditions are unfavorable. And it's just an amazing journey for an insect weighing less than a gram. Gail Bat, who uh, I know very mm. well, uh, <laughs> said the vultures, I was talking about, uh, I'd taken some pictures of vultures uh, warming themselves in the morning sun. So they're out on this limb with their wings spread straight out. And she said, why do they need to warm themselves in the morning sun? You know, they got all those feathers and everything. You'd think they'd be all right. And it's because they're so good at conserving energy. So they lower their body temperatures when they're sleeping. So when they wake up in the morning, they're pretty cold. And they need to use the sun to warm up and also dry off after some of those cool and or damp nights. And vultures sunbathe by spreading their wings in a heraldic pose, H-O-R-A-L-T-I-C. Uh, Brad Spooner of Owatonna asked another question about vultures. He said uh, he's a, a rural carrier, and I, I hear from a lot of rural carriers because those uh, wonderful guys and gals are always out there. Early in the morning, they're seeing things, and they're driving the same roads. So they notice different things. If something different than it was the day before, they notice. He said some of the vultures were flying so high up in the air, and he was wondering why they were doing that. Now, turkey vultures may be gaining altitude for long flights, or they might be searching for food, because turkey vultures scour the countryside looking for food. They soar in order to use their enhanced sense of smell and also their eyesight to find carrion. And they they put the yum into yuck. They come down and just eat nasty things. But to gain height, the vultures will float on warm columns of air called thermals that are created by the heat of the sun. And the higher the altitude they reach, the larger areas vultures can scan and the longer distances they can travel. So if you want to move, if you're a vulture, and you want to say, boy, I want to move five miles over there, I'm going to go over there and check, you might want to get up very high because it's just easier traveling and you can travel those five miles pretty quickly. So they may soar at an elevation of 200 feet when they're foraging and then as high as 5,000 feet when they're migrating. Uh, Another interesting thing about these beautiful scavengers is that circling vultures don't necessarily indicate the presence of a dead animal, no matter what Matt Dillon on on Gunsmoke taught us when he was always crawling across the desert because he got (laughs) shot through that same shoulder once again. I love Matt Dillon, but I I was so worried he got shot in the same place every time. I thought, he can't take a whole lot more of that. I got a nice email from somebody uh, from Keister and said, I heard you talk about the DNR pheasant index and how it varied statewide. But, boy, right here I don't see many pheasants. He said, and it sounds like everywhere is up and everything. Why, Why don't we see any here? Well, central Minnesota increased 95% over last year, pheasant numbers. West Central, 51%. Southwest Minnesota, 5%. But South Central, kind of where Keister would be, dropped 36%. And sadly, it's been dropping every year uh, since 2007. Hens are down about 30% and roosters 49%. What's going on there? 
A, a lot of it's habitat, and uh, there's two things that impact uh, pheasant numbers. It's habitat and weather are the oh. two things. And we get these uh, springs that are not conducive to successful um, hatching and raising of young ones like this year, and it takes a big bite. And it's like uh, humans, you know, we can they can have all the roosters in the world, and it won't do them any good unless they have a lot of hens. So they need a lot of hens to get their numbers back up. And uh, we hope, I love seeing them. I just think they're so pretty. I think the rooster pheasant is one of the most beautiful of birds. Uh, and I love hearing them do that cow cat. It's um, a creaky call, but I love hearing it. And I see them after our rains where they will come out and walk down the roads because it's dry there instead of walking through the wet grass. But uh, it, it, there used to be so many of them, and it's they're just not anymore. Uh, we uh, are lacking cattail marshes, which is a uh, a spot where they winter a lot in those things. So it's uh, it, it's just a a sad thing that we don't see so many. But uh, maybe maybe they'll make a comeback, you know. And it's uh, I got a uh, just got a text message from somebody said. I was out, I was in California. What three fictional birds are featured on the Hollywood Walk of Fame? Oh, I bet Woody Woodpecker, right? Yep. Is that one? Donald Duck. Yep. And let's see, I can't think of the last one. I got those two, and I didn't get the third one either. Big Bird. Oh, of course. Yes. Yeah, that's what I said. Oh, I should have known Big Bird, but I thought... Yeah, Woody Woodpecker, Donald Duck, and then I thought, oh, guys, there's got to be somebody else I'm thinking of, and I just, and Big Bird, I'm sorry, I should have thought of you right away, because you're very important to all of us, so thanks for sending that question, that was uh, that was a good one, I would have uh, lost, I would have had to call out for a for help on that one. Well, I've got another question from our friend John in New Ulm for you, too. Okay. He said, what do you call a cat that has a big party? Or that has big parties? A cat that has big parties. Mm-hmm. I do not know. The great cats be. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that is good. I like, I got to reread that book again. It, uh, it's it's just, been a long time. I don't even remember what it's about, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I read it in uh, oh, maybe my senior year of high school or my freshman year in college. Yes. I was yep. just so taken with it. And said, "Boy, I've got to reread that, and I don't, I don't think I have since then. So that's I'm going to put that on my to-do list here, which is a bloated to-do list of all these things. Now, I hope everyone will come to the cafe today, where the food chain is missing a few links. The special is always a Heimlich maneuver, and gravy is considered a beverage, and now featuring authentic leftovers with less hair in the food and." Real cup holders, where grease is good and none of the food smells like feet. Well, hardly any of it. I was having a great day. I I wore a shirt with a pocket on it. I love shirts with pockets on them, whether it's a T-shirt or a regular button shirt. If they got a pocket on it, I like them. So that's a good thing in itself. But to make it even better, I was wearing that shirt to a church basement potluck. And it was put on by folks who took bringing a dish to pass seriously. 
That caused me to grin like a goat-eating thistle. Uh, a grin refers to a facial expression that reflects a beaming smile. So when someone smiles in an unrestrained manner with mouth open and teeth visible, that's grinning, and that's what I was doing. A smirk is half a smile, and a giggle is a partial laugh. A smirk is a facial expression that conveys smugness and scorn. It isn't an innocent smile or the grin of a fool. It's a sneer expressing scorn or derision. A smirk is a way to mock or taunt a person or situation. There were no smirks at that potluck. In 1998, a study tasked participants to either hold a pen between their teeth, causing them to grin, or to hold a pen between their lips, inducing a frown. Participants were then shown cartoons and asked to rate how funny they were. The study found those who were grinning were more likely to giggle at the cartoons. Scientists at the University of Kansas conducted a study in which they assessed the impact of smiling on one's physical and mental state, coming to the conclusion that making yourself smile can help lower heart rate during stressful activities. There are those who disagree with these findings, but why not smile instead? If you want to make yourself smile, put on a shirt with a pocket on it and attend a church basement potluck. Remember, folks, Heartland is while we're driving past. Uh, thanks for having nothing better to do than to listen to me. and Do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Karen, as always, I enjoy your company, and I hope you have your very best day ever. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Al. It's always great to chat with you. We will talk to you next week, all right? Look forward to it. Okay, Bye. thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. All right, our good friend Al Bat, it is 1032, and you are listening to A Minnesota.